Hello, and welcome to For the Journey, a podcast offering formation and inspiration to Christians longing for more of God in their lives and in the world. For the Journey is presented by Coracle, a ministry committed to inspiring and enabling people to be the presence of God in the brokenness of the world through spiritual formation for kingdom action. We want to help you grow deeper in your relationship with God so that you can go further into the world with God's loving, healing, redeeming power. For the Journey is a space where each week we hope to help you encounter God and live a more integrated life of faith in the world by offering a regular rhythm of reflections, guided spiritual practices, thoughtful conversations, and more. This week, we share a Space for God Bible reflection from Rev. Dr. Kendrick Curry, co-chair of the Coracle Board and pastor at Pennsylvania Avenue Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Kendrick shares the story of Jesus' first public sermon from Luke 4, 16-22. In it, Jesus makes a striking declaration about the good news or gospel of the kingdom of God, a declaration that is as challenging for many of us to fully embrace now as it was for Jesus' original audience. Here's Kendrick. Greetings to all of you, um, brothers and sisters in faith, and we greet you in Jesus' joy. He's our Lord and Savior. And we have the privilege opportunity today just to um, make room and make space for God. One of the... uh, scriptures that is so near and dear to me is found in the uh, book of Luke in chapter four, beginning at verse 16, and I'll read 16 through uh, 21. And and it reads, and I'll read out of our traditional uh, reading comes out of our Baptist tradition. We read a lot out of the New Revised Standard, but this morning I'll read out of the New King James, which is also um, something we use quite quite a bit. And it reads this way. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Um, One of the things that we look at when we began to look at this portion of scripture is we set the tone by understanding that we have a reference point and all of us have presuppositions and biases that we come to the scripture with. Some look at the scripture from on top, others look at it from on bottom. And one of the ways that um, in my tradition, we typically look at scripture is by, uh, I'll give you a reflection from Howard Thurman, Jesus and the Disinherited. 
And this will give you a perspective about how we'll go into our text for today. It says, I can count on the fingers of one hand, the number of times that I've heard a sermon on the meaning of religion, of Christianity, to the man or woman who stands with his back or her back against the wall. It is urgent that my meaning be crystal clear. The masses of people live with their backs constantly against the wall. They are poor, the disinherited, the dispossessed. What does our religion say to them? The issue is not what it counsels them to do for others whose needs may be greater, but what religion offers to meet their own needs. The search for an answer to this question is perhaps the most important religious quest of modern life. I share that because as we look at the text from the bottom up and look at how this text disrupts our normal status quo, one of the things we began to see is how early um, in the text that we find Jesus is being rejected. It, the title will say rejected at Nazareth. One of the things we have to all immediately raise the question about is can anything good come out of Nazareth? What does that really mean? What does that really begin to look at us? Look, how do we begin to look at it and how do we begin to see? Jesus is going into the Sabbath on this day. He's in his own hometown and he picks up the book of the prophet Isaiah, and he finds a portion of scripture that is lodged in Isaiah chapter 61, verses one and two. And you've heard me read it where it said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. One of the things we have to begin to understand, and that stands very clear, is that from a perspective of from the bottom up, this reads as a scripture that is lodged in something that changes our course of being. It changes it prophetically, it changes it messianically, and it, it speaks to what we should really begin to look at as it relates to what Jesus is actually doing and who Jesus is actually speaking to. I share that with you because for me, one of the things that I immediately noticed in the text is not something that that's is something that precedes this whole idea of the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The image of one coming from Nazareth, perhaps a poor place, perhaps one where Jesus is part of, a, of he's a Jewish person who is of a minority sect who understands that he's not a wealthy person indeed. But the Bible says that he picks up a portion from the scroll that he's handed and he opens it and he found in the place and he begins to read. Notice that this speaks from a, a space of reading and literacy. We link it to literacy because the fact that Jesus can read ought to speak to us today. If we take Howard Thurman's message is very true in terms of what it means to the folks with their backs against the wall, then perhaps it speaks to us that it should not be a foregone conclusion that everyone everywhere in our congregations know how to read. I speak to that because I know it simply and true that I serve in Southeast Washington, DC. 
And the significance of this particular portion in verse 16 in particular speaks to this understanding of having a literate congregation that, that can read. Most folk assume that reading is, is very fundamental. But one of the things that this teaches us is that we should assume that nothing is, is a foregone conclusion. But we should always attend to the smallest details of those things that are meaningful as it relates to scripture. As we look at the ability to read, which is a very near and dear piece to my heart, because I had to actually have someone who did not know how to read in our congregation. It was a young person who would always act out in class and he would find himself acting out in class because he didn't know how to read. So one of the ways we taught him how to read is how slaves were taught to read a long time ago. And that was actually reading scripture to them and allowing them to repeat the words. Helping them in this way now begins to understand, I believe, what is the essence of finding out what's in this particular text. And when we get down to the understanding of that, we can now understand when the spirit of the Lord is upon us because it set Jesus apart. We're reflecting upon this understanding that Jesus was baptized. And as you remember, when he came up out of the water, a dove descended upon him or a bird descended upon him. And you hear heavens break open saying, this is my beloved in whom I'm, I'm well pleased. And this is a sign that he is one from God. And he is one that has a capability from a place that's not necessarily oriented toward those of the establishment or those necessarily of wealth. But I, I share this with you because when it says it gives a reason because he has anointed me, he has anointed me to do what? To preach, to proclaim the gospel to whom? The poor. One of the things that is very critical in all of this is to turn all of these statements here into questions. And, and see with those who have their backs against the wall, what are we really contending with? So who are the poor to whom we, we preach the good news? Who are those that are brokenhearted to, that we share this good news with? Who are those to whom we proclaim liberty to the captives? How are we those that re find recovery of sight to the blind? And how are the oppressed set at liberty and then what does this say overall to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's favor? We realize that if we look at uh, Leviticus 25 and understand that Jubilee, that this is, is, is indeed lodged in the Jubilee uh, release of, of scripture, where literally we have an opportunity to see people who are witnessing the presence and power of God in terms of being released from all of that which is negating. I say that because one of the things in Jubilee is after every seven years, and then in the 49th year, after everything in the 50th year, you find Jubilee. Every seven years, you count as a time of Jubilee. But in that 50th year, you begin to understand that people recognize that their debts are free, they're no longer slaves. So what does that mean to us biblically? What does that mean to us spiritually? What it says is that we have to begin to look at this as at a different way. And looking at it in a different way, we begin to see 
to whom we think about as the poor, those who are on the margins, those who consider themselves or, or who see the, oh, the world sees them as the disinherited. They are the ones who are the brokenhearted. They are the ones who need to be released. They are the ones who are also find themselves dealing with poverty and are poor. They are also those who have been, found themselves being the captives and not able to see as others see. The position of wealth does something to us. It may, it may blind us in some ways so that we can't see what our brother and our sister who is of greater need is really seeing. I, I challenge each and every one of us today to begin to look at how are we carrying the gospel to the poor? And not only looking at them as poor as not having means, but considering ourselves to also be poor in the spirit. How are we dealing with those that are brokenhearted? I have many that are dealing with uh, broken hearts now. And being here recently, I have folk that are in my congregation who literally have were um, on the phone with the gentleman that was killed at the Capitol here recently. And the, the police officer of the Capitol Hill Police, one of his very good friends who happens to be a member of our church, was there with him and talked to him moments before. And he said, wow, pastor, I, my heart is broken. We've had not only this death, but we've had three funerals uh, in the course of three months that have really taken since January the 6th. And it's taken a lot. And I just wonder, do other people's hearts break when they consider that perhaps if this was a Black Lives Matter that had attacked the Capitol or if it was another situation, then would we see Black people dead? Would, why does it always seem as though those that are challenged and those that are trying have a broken heart? One of the things that we have to understand with regard to that is recognizing that this image of a broken heart goes beyond our normal purview. It has to find itself engaged in something that allows us to carry another's pain. Henry Nowen in Wounded Healer talks about how our wounds can be means of healing for others. James Cone and the cross and the lynching tree helps us understand this because until we can see the cross of Christ as a lynching tree and see them side by side juxtaposed, then how can we under, begin to understand what it means to be brokenhearted? This is the proverbial being able to put your feet in the shoes of another or being able to sit in the seat of another. How do we proclaim this liberty to the captives, to these who are poor, to these who are bound? See, many of us have, have measures of modicums of privilege. Even I have modicums of privilege because yes, I've, I've, I've gone to some good schools. Yes, I've had privilege of having um, uh, resources and not really having had to miss a meal. But when you intentionally do something that another friend of mine has done, and I'm just about finished here, you begin to have something open up. And one of the things that he's done is he goes out and lives as a homeless person for a period of several weeks. He learns how to navigate the system and go through. And his insights are tremendous. 
He said, I never learned how privileged I was until I, I voluntarily became homeless and decided to live out in a place where others live. So I went in, I lived in a homeless shelter for a week. I understand that they let me out at six o'clock every morning and I have to find a place to go and begin to understand how I live life. I also have to learn how to negotiate and navigate the system of the city of Washington, D.C., and then begin to find out how I can find a meal for the day. Maybe I can go to a church here. Maybe I can beg somewhere else here. But with no money in my pocket, with nothing that I can, no place to lay my head, because if I don't get to the shelter on time at night, then I may not have a, a place to lay my head. So I sleep on the grates and find myself wrapping up with all sorts of blankets that I've been able to borrow, cardboard that I've been able to uh, uh, fend for myself and put together. And I try to block the wind with regard to baskets that come from grocery stores. So I no longer have, uh, am able to uh, find myself cold, but I can find myself having some warmth. When I think about that and realizing that I've never really been homeless and I've only voluntarily been homeless for a period of days, but this person does it a period of weeks, it changes the mindset and what we understand with regard to being captive. And that part of being captive and being poor and being brokenhearted is something we all have to ask questions about. This, is a, this text is a major disruptor because it speaks to something that we often don't encounter. If we read it on the surface, we're only talking about those things where we see as the other. But I challenge us to look at those who Jesus is speaking to that he's proclaiming the acceptable year for as those who we are very well acquainted with. How are we in those situations? How are we sitting with our backs against the wall? How are we looking to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? Switch your seats. Sit in a place where the poor reside, where those that are truly brokenhearted understand that life is not their, necessarily their friend. And when we're captive, we must understand that literally we are not only captive by some of the horrors that we experience like death and like taxes and like other things, but the horrors of understanding that you are treated less than a person. You are still three-fifths thereof, or you, you are not considered to be have any sense of value. And Jesus is speaking to all of us to, who belong to the human family. And we are able to see beyond a shadow of a doubt that when he declares today is the acceptable year of the Lord's favor and he's fulfilling it in their presence, he's coming to all of us, those who are rich and those who are poor, those who are happy and those who are sad, those who find themselves at the bottom of the rung and those who are on top. Those who can find themselves identifying with the cross and those who are, can find themselves identifying with the lynching tree. And when they all come together and we see we're part of the human family, then we can say that the scripture is being fulfilled because we are one people gathered at one place at one time on one accord. And the Lord will reveal himself mightily unto us. 
let this be a disruption for us, even today, in such a way that we might help another to read, help another that is poor, and voluntarily find ourselves sitting in their position where we can begin to look from the perch from where they are and see the power of the true and the living God. So God bless you. May heaven smile upon you. And let's be disruptors for the cause of Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for listening to For the Journey. We hope you'll join us again next week. And in the meantime, you can explore past episodes and see what we're up to at inthecoracle.org and on social media at inthecoracle. If you were blessed by what you just heard, please subscribe as we'll be releasing new episodes each week. Please also feel free to rate and review the show and share this episode around with others who might be blessed by it. For the Journey is made possible by the generous support of our Coracle partners, the wonderful men and women who choose to support this ministry through their prayers and financial gifts. If you're one of our partners and are listening, we are so grateful for you. And if you would like to join us as a sustaining partner, you can set up a monthly donation of any amount at inthecoracle.org support. The link is in the show notes. Our growing community of partners gets access to tailor-made resources, gifts, and events, and we would love for you to be a part of that. If you have a question or a topic you'd like for us to take up on the podcast, please email it to us at podcast at inthecoracle.org. You're welcome to type it out, but if you can record yourself asking your question and send us the audio, you may even get to hear yourself on the air. The For the Journey theme song is Mystery Hymn from our friends at Lowland Hum. Please give them a listen wherever you get your music. And so friends, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen, and we will see you on the journey.